If you are looking for even more help and guidance on your breakup, I have a few different options for you to take your healing to the next level. I have four different online courses depending on what stage of the breakup that you're in from beginning all the way into moving on after heartbreak, or you can bundle all of my courses together and use the code podcast to get $25 off my course bundle. I also have my 30 day no contact challenge to help hold you accountable in going no contact with your ex. And we have our free Facebook group, Healing Hearts Club, where you can connect with other people going through breakups all over the world. To learn more about any of these resources, head to the show notes where you can learn more about my courses, take the quiz to figure out which course is best for you, or join the Facebook group. And don't forget to use the code PODCAST to get $25 off my course bundle. Welcome to the Heal Your Heartbreak podcast with your host, Breakup Bestie, aka me, Kendra. Breakups are hard, but you don't have to do it alone. Each week, I will be taking you through a different topic as it relates to breaking up, healing from heartbreak, growing in your single life, dating, and getting back into happier and healthier relationships. The goal of this show is to provide support, hope, tips, and to remind you that above all, this too shall pass. Welcome to another expert episode of the Heal Your Heartbreak podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Marissa G. Franco. She is a professor, psychologist, and a New York Times bestselling author of the book Platonic, which is all about how to make friends. And I was sent an article on her by a friend and literally ran to Instagram to to DM her because if you listen to this podcast, you know how important it is to lean on your friends when going through a breakup. I talk about it all the time. And Dr. Marissa G. Franco is an expert on this. She studied friendship. She wrote the book on it. So we talk we talk about how to make friends as an adult. She has so much science and research to back up why it's so important to have intimate friendships, how to really change your mindset around making friends, and why it's important not to assume that people don't want to be your friend. She talks about how attachment style plays into friendships. We talk about why it's so important to um, have friendships even in like even if you are in an intimate relationship. So she really wants to like level the hierarchy of relationships and not just assume that romantic partnerships are like the highest and most important one. She really wants to get the message across that platonic friendships are are just as important. So, so excited for you guys to listen to this episode. I loved talking to her. I learned so much from every guest and I'm always so excited to present you guys with the guests. So I hope you enjoy this podcast episode and I hope you go out and buy her book Platonic. Welcome Dr. Marissa G. Franco to the show. I am so honored to have you on to talk about friendships today. Thank you so much, Kendra. I would love to start off by just hearing how you got interested in this topic of of friendships. Yeah, that is a great question and, and so relevant to yeah. this podcast because it was in my young 20s. I was going through these breakups. I felt so bad. I ended up starting a wellness group with my friends to heal where we met up each week and we practiced wellness. So we went on walks or we had dinner together or we read together or we told stories to each other. And it was very life-changing for me 
And the most healing thing of all, first of all, was, was not all the wellness. It was just the community and being around people that loved me that I loved every week. And I think going through that, that group made me really reconsider some beliefs about love that I had been passed down to me, which was, you know, without romantic love, I have no love, right? That this is the love that particularly as a woman makes me worthy as a person. So I looked around and I was just like, well, I feel this love so much. Why doesn't this love count? Like, why doesn't this love matter? Why have we been taught that this is second class form of love when to me it feels so powerful? So I really felt like, wow, this is a really larger cultural issue that I don't think that I'm alone in. So part of my desire to write platonic was I wanted to level the hierarchy that we place on love so that friendship would be valued much more than it it is and it was. Yeah, that is, it reminds me, I mean, I had my, like a really pivotal moment with friends. I got sober when I was 21 and I really learned how to rely on other people to, you know, it wasn't necessarily a, a man or a partner that I lost, but it was like this huge part of, my identity that it felt like losing alcohol from that. So learning how to rely on friends and meeting in community on a really regular basis was felt like friendships were the thing that like could make me feel complete in a time where I felt very felt like a huge void void in my life. So I think regardless of whatever you're going through, even if your life's really good, I feel like friendships are are so important. And, and I'm curious, why do you think as a society we've like put friendships as like a second place to to romance? Well, we have to look at our history. And if you look into the history of the Western world, you'll see that it wasn't always like this. You know, in the early 1800s and before, people got married for practical reasons. You know, your last name sounds good with mine. It's respectable. You will have shared resources. Your family chose your partner for you. And the assumption around that time was that the genders are so distinct that you can only access deep intimacy from people of your same gender. So best friends were holding hands, sharing beds, writing love letters to one another. Like there were all types of deep intimacy. And at that time, you know, none of this, these behaviors were considered homoerotic. Like they might be today, you know, sharing a bed with a friend, cuddling with a friend, writing a friend a love letter. Because what was stigmatized at the time, very taboo, was having sex with someone of the same sex, but not any of these behaviors that we assume suggest someone's sexuality. What changed was in 1867, Sigmund Freud, Richard Bond, Kraft Ebbing, two psychiatrists that began to argue that, you know, if you're gay, it's a disorder, and also that being gay is an entire identity. So now anything that you do that could signify this identity is, is stigmatized, which is sadly a lot of the behaviors that create intimacy and friendship. So I've even heard men say things like, I can't even reach out to a new friend. I'm afraid of how it will come off, you know? And so that really changed the face of friendship forever where, you know, if you look back at pictures from that earlier time, you saw pictures of men and football teams cuddling in each other's arms, you know, like Frederick Douglass saying his friends is what shook his decision to leave the plantation, plantation above all else, right? So that, that change in how we perceive sexuality really hindered friendship. But not only that, as you had 
you know, marriage is this institution that we've wanted to protect and women were developing new rights where you can now, you know, buy a house without having to go through your spouse or open a credit card, you know, all these things that women weren't allowed to do, or even, you know, get a job and find different types of work that were not open to women. Right. At that point, it's sort of like, I think this this narrative, this hierarchy of love is kind of what could keep women in marriage when they no longer need marriage in the same way. Like, let's make you feel like you're nothing without it. Let's make you feel like this is what your worth depends on as a medium. And let's also make sure that you other relationship, friendship can't threaten your desire to get into a marriage because it's an inferior form of connection. Like it won't give you the same thing. And so that I think also is part of the reason why we devalue friendship. That's so interesting. I didn't realize any of that. And I mean, it makes it makes perfect sense. And I'm curious, like, if we look more into more recent times is do you feel like how do we feel like social media has impacted friendships? I mean, obviously, we have access to like an elementary school friend that, you know, I haven't seen in a long time. So I feel connected. But obviously, it's like not the not the same kind of thing. Yeah. So it's quite complex. The relationship between social media use and loneliness in some studies have been found to have no correlation, but that is, there's something behind that, that it depends on how you use it. There's, this is a theory called displacement theory, that people that use social media to displace in-person connections are lonelier, whereas people that use social media to facilitate in-person connections are actually less lonely than people that aren't on social media. So if you're someone who finds yourself three days a week, you know, four days a week, you're going home, you're swiping through Instagram, watching TikTok videos for hours, right? Those That's time that you might have spent with friends. So that's really making you more lonely versus if you're someone who goes home and, you know, writes a Facebook message to your friend or slides in their DMs says, we need to catch up, right? That's actually making you less lonely. What do I think is the bigger picture overall of, of social media and connection? I think that there's ways to use social media to form connection, but the way these apps are created and designed is not to, to foster connection. It's to stay on the app. So that's just scrolling and scrolling and scrolling, right? You know, that's another piece of the research on social media and connection. When we just scroll, it negatively impacts our mental health and feelings of connection. Whereas when we engage, when we comment on people's pages and, you know, reshare things, that actually makes us feel more connected. So it could be a tool for connection, but it's not used that way most of the time, which is why we find that in 2012, loneliness has been increasing for decades, but in 2012, rates really started to spike. And that's when the smartphone became widely used. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, obviously how we probably used it, you know, in 2020 during the height of COVID when we weren't seeing people face-to-face is probably different than, you know, we're using it before that or even, you know, now as as things have gone back to normal. I'd love to talk about the advantages people who do have like deep, intimate friendships may have, whether that's like, you know, I know there's like longevity and like, you know, my parents are obsessed with longevity stuff and they were talking about how having like deep friendships can actually make you live longer. So I would love to hear some of, you know, the benefits of, of having those deep, intimate friendships. Yeah. So there is a lot of research on that, that actually when we think about diet and exercise as things that promote longevity, actually having a social network, a strong, robust social network is related to our mortality and how long we live more so than diet or exercise, significantly more so. 
other research that like when people are exposed to the common cold virus, if they're lonely, they're four times more likely to for it to turn into the common cold. So there's another study that of 106 factors that influence your likelihood of getting depression, having a confidant is the number one protective factor. So basically <laughs> to, I would say like to be functioning well as humans, we need connection. We don't always realize how much loneliness is impacting us, but loneliness puts us in this hypervigilant state. It's not just a feeling, it's a way of perceiving the world. When we're lonely, our brain is like, let me look out for threat. Let me look out for threat. Let me look out for to see if someone is rejecting me. Let me look out to see someone is harming me, right? It's a chronic stress state that's very toxic for our bodies. It actually disrupts our sleep because we engage in these micro wakes where we wake up for a second to like make sure that we're safe. It Lonely people actually report liking humanity less, having less compassion for others, being more hostile in relation to threats. Again, because we're in this activated stress state where we're lonely. And you, we think about this historically, if you're alone on the savanna, separated from your tribe, you're lonely and you're in danger. Now it's not the same context, but our, our bodies are still working on overdrive when we're lonely. So I would say loneliness has been found to amplify like most physical and mental, like for even like breast cancer, for example, and that finding connection, finding friendship is arguably the most important thing we can do for our, our mental health, our happiness and our physical health. Yeah. I mean, I feel like the times, you know, when I got sober before getting sober, I did have that that loneliness mainly because I, you know, was not acting in a way that was very conducive to people wanting to be close to me. But, you know, the the stark difference between that versus now having that that full social community is hugely important on my mental health. Could you talk because I think some people will be like, well, do I have deep, you know, quote unquote, like deep friendships or not, you know, people will say, you know, you can still feel lonely in like a group full of people. What are some of the the indicators of like a more of a deep friendship versus, you know, ones where you just might see each other at social events or whatever that looks like? Yeah. Do you feel authentic around them? Do you feel like you could be your real self? Do you feel like you can call this person in a time of need and they will show up for you. I think the vulnerability and that authenticity piece are really, really key towards intimacy. I think when we develop an intimate relationship with someone, what happens is we include them in our sense of self. So when they hurt, we hurt. When they are happy, we're happy. Do you see that happening? Are they rooting for your success? Are they, do they feel for you when you're feeling bad, right? And this is fundamentally one thing that I share about friendship is that I think our scripts for friendship, our scripts for friendship, particularly for men, are so unnecessarily limited. And I think a lot of us perceive good friendship as just good company, which means I enjoy being around you. I like you as a person. But to me, good friendship is not just good company. It's that plus we're invested in each other. We're committed in each other. I'm trying to show up for you. I'm trying to celebrate your successes. I'm reaching out to you. I'm trying to make your life lighter. I'm there for you know the low points in your life, right? It is an investment and a commitment, just like any form of intimacy, just like romantic intimacy is, right? And so I think our issue is that when it comes to friendship, we think friendship is inferior and then that script becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because then you're not reaching out as much. Then you're not trying to show up as much in the same way. 
because you're like, I can't get, you know, I can't get much out of this relationship. But if you look at, well, how am I behaving towards this friendship? You might realize, oh, any behavior, any friendship, any relationship, I should say, wherein I invest less, wherein I don't try to show up for this person, wherein I don't try to follow through with my word, within wherein I don't actually actively try to initiate and engage and try to see this person is going to be less intimate. So I think it also requires us to understand that friendship can be intimate. It can be deep. It can be powerful if we engage in the behaviors to make it that way. I feel like too, similar to like a relationship, you know, there are friendships where, you know, if it's, if we're just saying like, oh, it's just good company, that means like when you're actually with each other. But I feel like the friendships where, you know, you can go a period of time without seeing them, but still feel very like emotionally connected where you could, you know, call on them and say like, I'm really going through it. I need help. Whereas, you know, if you're in any kind of relationship and there's distance and you feel like all of a sudden you're not connected in any way, I feel like that's, you know, not a good sign for a relationship or a friendship. I was going to ask you like that whole thing of it takes being a good friend to have to have good friends. I get messages a lot because I talk about friendships and people will say like, I don't feel like I have great friendships. And, you know, it's not to like place blame, but it is like, what kind of a friend are you being? Because if you want someone to show up for you, you have to show up for them and like remembering, oh, Becca has, a you know, has an interview next week that she's really nervous about. So like remembering to send a text, good luck today. How did it go? Like just those, can you talk about like, what does being a good friend to other people look like? Yeah, this is a, a great point. And I totally agree with you. You know, when people report on the most important thing in a friendship, they actually report, I thought it was, you know, before I studied friendship, being entertaining, charismatic, funny, fun, right? That's actually the least important quality people report. They report the most important one being someone that makes them feel like they matter as a person. And there's a theory called the theory of inferred attraction, which is basically people like people that they think like them. So if you want to be likable towards people, you have to help them belong, right? Like all of these questions we ask ourselves, why is no one reaching out to me? Why is no one trying to jump over my walls and be vulnerable, you know, find my vulnerable side? Why is no one inviting me to things? Like, do you do that for other people? Because what makes them do that for you is when you do that for them. Part of that, this theory, I think, risk regulation theory that really sheds light on this. And it's, we decide how much to invest on a relationship based on our likelihood of getting rejected. If you are not showing people that you accept them actively, they're going to fear getting close to you. They're going to fear that they're going to be rejected, right? Because you're not reaching out to them. You're not saying, oh, it's so nice to hear from you. You're not sending them that text that says, I care about you. You know, you're not saying, oh, you just went through this breakup. I just wanted to see how you're doing, right? And risk regulation theory also argues that we are, there's two modes we can live in, self-protection mode, which is I don't want to get rejected. So I'm not reaching out. No one wants to hear from me or I'm not you know, going to be vulnerable, or I'm not going to be generous with my time, or I'm not going to go out of my way because all that protects me. But that is actually, the consequence of that is that you're not in pro-relationship mode. Pro-relationship mode is I am going to reach out. I am going to be vulnerable. I am going to be generous, right? And so the idea is that we need to realize that self-protection mode in the long run is self-harm because if I'm always protecting myself, I'm harming my relationships, which is the greatest resource that I have. Not only that, if we think about how can I get 
people around me to switch from their self-protection mode to their pro-relationship mode. So they will invest in me, right? That's the piece of you have to make them feel like they won't be rejected, that they are valued as people because then they'll feel safe enough to want to invest in you. I was just thinking like, you know, I went through this big shift in my early 20s of, of making new friends. And one of something that I did for I did it for seven years was I hosted a Friendsgiving. And the first year I did it, there was like six people there. And like by the seventh year, we had like almost 40 people. And it was like, you know, people started looking forward to it. But it was like it was this, it's so much work. It was like this big thing to put together. But like it was making, you know, inviting new people every year, connecting people, you know, putting in putting in work to, you know, and it doesn't have to be like, you know, hosting a party or something like that. But I have found that the times where I'm in that mode of I'm not getting invited anywhere, I'm, you know, people don't want me around. I think we can get in this ego, probably scorekeeping kind of a mode where, oh, I don't want to, you know, and I think we can do this in dating too. They texted me first or I texted first three times. I shouldn't do this. I feel like if we get in that scorekeeping mode, both people lose out, you know? And that kind of leads me to this whole idea of like making new friends. And I think that was like your first thing that you did in your social media video of making friends as an adult is operating under the assumption that people, I forgot exactly how you said it, but like people want to make friends, you know, it's like, I think if we operate of like, no one wants to make new friends, but that's not true. I feel like we, everyone likes meeting people and and making new connections. Like I made, I met a new mom friend in my neighborhood and it literally lit me up for like the whole week. Can you talk about that? Like operating under that assumption? Yeah. So first I just wanted to touch on the damage we do to our relationships when we think everyone is going to reject us. Right. Like I see it in my students. They're like, I don't think anyone wants to hear from me. And so what happens is then they are always rejecting people. They never reach out to their friends. They never initiate. What's that like for their friends? Their friends are like feeling very rejected by them, right? But this person is in their own ego of people don't like me and not considering their impact on other people. So I think when we're in the stage of everybody's going to reject me, we don't consider our impact on others. And we can actually do a lot of damage because of that. You know, there's also research on people that are rejection sensitive that tend, these people tend to perceive rejection when it's not necessarily there, right? They haven't heard back from a friend in a few hours. Instead of assuming the friend's busy, this friend might hate me, right? And what happens is they then reject people. They become cold. They become withdrawn in reaction to perceived rejection. They become the actual rejector and then people will reject them back. And so I think there's this way that there's actually a research term for it, the hypervigilance for social threat hypothesis, that when we think we're always being rejected, it harms and damages our relationships because then we become cold and and rejecting. And so what I do suggest for building friendships is to assume people like you. First of all, you're right in that people do like you more than you think. You know, there's this, this research study on something called the liking gap that finds that when strangers interact, they underestimate how liked they are by the other person. And the more self-critical they are, the more pronounced this gap is. So you think your mean internal dialogue is telling you the truth when it's actually more greatly distorting the truth. Not only that, when people were told by researchers, lied to, they were lied to, they were told you're going to go into this group and based on your personality profile, you are going to be liked, complete lie. But what they found is that when people thought this was true, they went into the group warmer, friendlier, more open. So it was actually a self-fulfilling prophecy that 
when we feel loved, we are more loving. Whereas when we feel rejected, we're actually prickly, kind of cold, kind of mean to other people. And so that's why I suggest like, go into this group, assuming people like you, because that is going to bring out the types of behaviors that really foster friendship. Can you talk maybe some, how else can we go about making friends as adults? Yeah. First thing I want to suggest, don't assume friendship happens organically. That belief is actually related to being more lonely over time, whereas the belief that friendship happens based on effort is related to being less lonely. So if you have no friends right now, I would suggest you spend two hours searching online for a social group that you would like to join. You know, you like hiking, you like learning languages, you like eating food. You know, there's social groups for for everything. You can do, you know, look at Meetup, look at different Facebook groups, look at Instagram to find a group that you want to join. And I always suggest joining a group that's repeated over time versus something that's just once, like not just like a networking event, but like a professional development group, not just a workshop, but a course. Because you capitalize on something called the mere exposure effect, which is our unconscious, completely unconscious tendency to like what's familiar. So that means when we see each other repeatedly, we'll simply through being exposed to each other, we'll like each other more and people will like us more, right? But the implications of that is also at the beginning, when you first join this group, you know, I remember in college, I joined this group. I went for one day. (laughs) No one talked to me in the group. I didn't talk to them either. Looking back, you know, I wasn't holding myself accountable. And I was like, I don't think this is my cup of tea. It's not my group of people. But what I didn't realize is if you feel uncomfortable at first, that's normal. That's part of the process, right? Mere exposure effect has not set in. We are, you know, biologically programmed to be a little bit weary and a little bit mistrusting of what is unfamiliar. It's not a sign to quit. It's a sign to stick around for two to three months. See if you feel the same way, right? Other thing that I wanted to suggest is you have to overcome two types of avoidance to make friends. One is overt avoidance, which means I don't show up because I um, am scared, right? So you have to show up, you know, show up to the group, but also covert avoidance, which is I show up physically, but I check out mentally. I'm just on my phone talking to that one person I already know, you know, watching the TV when we all meet, you know, at the bar. And so what I want to suggest is that you also have to overcome covert avoidance, which means you have to engage with people. Remember to assume people like you and then approach them and say, you know, hey, it's Mar- my, my name's Marissa. It's so good to meet you. Tell me about your experience with this group so far. How has it been for you, right? Like that idea that when we help other people belong, we will belong. If we help other people feel welcome, we're going to be welcomed in the group. One of my best pieces of advice someone gave me is like, if you're uncomfortable at a party, just ask people about themselves. People love talking about themselves. <laughs> and it's we don't, you know, and like some people don't have the experience of having friends that like ask them questions about them. So I remember I had this experience. I was newly dating my husband. We were at an event. It was all his friends. I felt so uncomfortable because I didn't know anyone. And I barely spoke like the whole event, but I just, I asked questions. I like laughed when people told jokes. And as I was leaving, one of the friends was like, it was so nice meeting you. You are so fun to be around. And I was leaving and I was like, I didn't say anything. And then I was like, it's not about like being charismatic or being like extroverted. Like literally I just was a good listener and, you know, and that was like a really pivotal thing for me to, you know, being around. I always used to think I had to be, like you said, like the charismatic, the fun one, that's who people want to be around. But I realized like it's being the person that sees 
sees someone else like can you know making them again making them feel like they matter and and things like that so i i always like to to give that advice too and i think for me what i realized is like volunteering was a great way to meet friends you're like doing something you're not just like standing around which i know can like make you feel extra uncomfortable so like you know hiking or something where there's like an activity where you're not just having to stand around at like a mixer or something yeah i think those are great suggestions yeah volunteering like there's research that finds that we feel connected from doing things that are pro-social pro-social is just things that help other people So it's like you get a double dose of connection, right? That you're volunteering and that inherently makes us feel connected, but also you're volunteering with other people that you can also feel connected to. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had unlimited time and energy? As you're navigating your breakup, I know your energy can feel low and it can feel really difficult to complete everything you need to in a day. When you're emotionally exhausted, it's especially important to be really clear on what your priorities are and where your energy should be invested. Therapy has helped me in the past figuring out where I should be putting my energy, whether that's career, friendships, relationships, events, which in turn has helped lower my anxiety because I don't always have to feel stretched thin or behind. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash heartbreak today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash heartbreak. The next question that I wanted to ask you, and I don't want this to come off to any listeners as like blaming or anything, but oftentimes I'll get messages where someone will say, I don't have any friends. And I'm just always curious, like when someone says that, is it typically because they don't really have friends or is it because they they do have, they have like a very underutilized support system that they just like haven't reached out to and, and they are there. They're just not invested Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I feel like I have enough data to say, but I can speculate because I do think there is a difference between not having friends and not leveraging your friendships, right? Like for you to feel like you have friends, it's not just about having people that call you friends or that you call friends. It's about, do you reach out to those people? You know, do you try to meet up? Are you vulnerable with them? Like, yeah, it's not just in name, it's in practice and behavior, right? So the question is, do you not have anyone you could reach out to or do you have people you could reach out to, but you're not? And so that's part of what's making you feel like you really don't have any friends. I think, you know, some of the barriers that really get in the way of for people when it comes to making friends is like, you know, in my book, I talk about our attachment styles, which is basically when we're really young with our parents and there's also a genetic component from how they treated us, we develop these beliefs about the world in terms of how people will treat us, Right. And those evolve after your continued relationships. But based on those early relationships, you know, anxiously attached people tend to be very afraid of rejection and abandonment. So their friendships are more volatile and they end up forming friendships real quick to soothe that fear of abandonment. They overshare. If people pull away, they cling closer rather than deciding, well, if they don't want to be friends with me, I'm not going to be friends with them. Versus avoidantly attached people who I think maybe struggle with friendships the most because they've been taught from their relationships that if I'm too intimate, 
I'm going to be betrayed or I'm going to be harmed. So they tend to try to just be sort of lone wolves, be very independent, very much pride themselves on self-sufficiency, don't actually experience as much joy from friendship because they these feelings of threat are active and they don't really try. They don't really put in any effort. Like avoidantly attached people, according to the research, they're less likely to initiate and more likely to end friendships. And their internalized sense is like, I don't trust anyone, Right. And of course, that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because when you don't trust anyone, you're literally looking for ways that people are untrustworthy, like to interpret their words in ways that make them more untrustworthy. Or nine out of 10 times, they are untrustworthy, but you take that one time to say, I was right all along, right? And so, you know, once we have these ideas, we don't realize how they are such self-fulfilling prophecies, right? But then you have securely attached people, which my book Platonic is about, how can we make ourselves more secure in our friendships? And, and they have this template that is, you know, I assume I could get close to people and intimacy is going to be rewarding. And I'm assuming that people like me and they're more likely to initiate friendships, less likely to dissolve them, you know, better at handling conflict. I call them the super friends. So I think some of our unconscious core beliefs can really affect our ability to make friends and can sometimes leave us quite lonely. And, I, you know, people ask me after writing this book on how to become more securely attached, am I never insecure? <laughs> Do I never <laughs> feel hurt by rejection? And obviously, no, that's not the case. But what happens is I hold my insecurities more lightly. I know yeah. that they're not necessarily true. There's that part of me that feels insecure and the other part of me that's like, well, I know from the research people like me more than I think, right? I know from the research that it's usually not as bad as I make it out to be in my head. So it's more so that I... My insecurities are there, but they're not, they're not driving the car, I guess. Yeah. And I, I feel like too, you know, once you have some experience in friendships where there are opportunities to maybe have a disagreement and come back together, some time away and come back together, I feel like you start realizing like, oh, they are a lot more secure or they are a lot more like grounded than I realize. I actually, this was like a big therapy learning for me because I didn't really have any great examples of fights or just anything happening in a friendship and then coming back together and repairing. And that showed up in my relationships too. Anytime there was a fight, it was like, it's over and needing to cling really tight, allowing that stuff to happen. It doesn't mean, you know, it's time to run away. It's time to maybe wait it out or have a tough conversation or something like that. And I found that once I had that experience, I'm a very anxiously attached person by, by character. And so allowing that to happen, I feel like I've been able to become a lot more secure in my friendships. Cause I know like, okay, I've been through this before. It's going to be okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Either way, it's going to be okay. Exactly. I went through the same journey. That's my biggest anxiously attached area is conflict with friends. Yeah. And I read this study that found that open conflict is linked to deeper intimacy, mm -hmm. open empathic conflict. And I was like, oh my God, am I actually harming my friends? By <laughs> and I realized how I was because I would try to push all these things away and think it's it's my it's my duty as a friend. Being a good friend is pretending there's no problems or trying to get over things, right? But I would watch myself instead withdraw. Like you can't just like ignore those feelings. They're still there. So I was withdrawing from one of my best friends and reading this research and being like, oh, by me not addressing conflict, I'm not making the relationship better. I'm making it worse. Yeah. And then I read from this psychoanalyst, Virginia Golner. She talks about the difference between 
comfortable safety, which is we feel safe because we pretend nothing's wrong versus dynamic safety. We rupture, we repair, we rupture, we repair. And that is true intimacy that she argues. So I, um, I brought up conflict with a friend and I realized, you know, that yes, conflict can bring you closer. And it's not, I think before when I was very anxious about conflict, I would push it away until it got really bad. And then I would address it in a way that wasn't wasn't fair and wasn't empathic, right? And then I would say, oh, look, this confirms my fear. You know, if yeah. conflict, everybody's going to abandon you. Not realizing it wasn't that I brought up conflict. It was how I brought it up. So learning how to have conflict in a way that's loving, where I'm like framing this conversation as I would love for us to stay close, which is why I feel like it's important for me to bring up things that come up between us. And, you know, I felt hurt when this happened. What was going on on your end? And this is a need for me. Like, would you be open to fulfilling that in the future? Yeah. Instead of you suck and you're awful. Yeah. <laughs> or just like quietly drifting away, which I've exactly. you know, definitely done as well. I was trying to, yes, that's what my therapist used, rupture and repair. I was trying to think of that, that term. So that, that's therapy, what that was. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so aside from rupture and repair, which, you know, obviously we can't, we don't want to force that to happen or, you know, cause that to happen. What are some other ways that maybe we can deepen friendships. I always think about my grandma always said that if you wanted to make a friend ask for a favor or share a secret. And I feel like that's been like really helpful, but are there ways that we can deepen existing friendships if we feel like maybe they're really surface? Yeah. Your grandma's on point. First of all, Um, (laughs) definitely being vulnerable and sharing things that you're struggling with is such a great driver of intimacy. And you'll hear from a lot of the theme that I will share today is that when we predict how our social behaviors come off, we are inaccurate and pessimistic. Our brain's negativity bias. We notice what's negative more than what's positive, right? It's a survival mechanism, right? And so when we're vulnerable, there's something called the beautiful mess effect occurs, wherein when we think about how we come off when we're vulnerable, we think people will judge us. When we think about how other people come off when they're vulnerable, we appreciate it. And we think it's, they're being very authentic, right? So we misjudge the impact of our vulnerability. Intimate self-disclosure, according to the research, is related to people liking us more, not less. So actually sharing things that you're struggling with, being like really honest with your friends. Like if you've been friends with someone for a while, like dip your toe into that, offer something, you know, deeper, more vulnerable than you might usually share. And then, you know, Anything that shows that we value someone creates intimacy. So things like generosity, right? Specifically, our generosity will be more, will maintain the relationship more strongly when it's offered at a time when our friend is really in need. So for me, when I hear a friend is going through a hard time, I'm like, I got to step up, right? Like I'm going to send them a card. I'm going to make them dinner. I'm going to call to check in, right? Like that's not the time to be passive because what you do in that time is going to have so much more meaning than if you did it at any other time. So offering that generosity, also affection. You know, this researcher, he followed new pairs of friends in college for 12 weeks and he looked at what predicted whether they stayed friends or deepened the relationship. And it was how much they affirmed one another, like telling people, your friends, like, these are all the things I value in you, right? Or I really appreciate you for these reasons. Thank you so much. What you shared with me really impacted me. And I just wanted to let you know that like, all of those things are really important for deepening and maintaining our friendships. I think too, allowing other people to be generous towards you in in friendship. I feel like I've done that in the past where like, I've 
can I do something for you? Like, how can I help you? And it's like, oh, I'm okay. I'm okay. Okay. But like allowing people to show up for you is so big. Cause it also, you know, if you think about how good you feel when you get to help a friend, like you don't want to deprive your friends of that, of that too. I always think about when you're having a conversation with someone and you say, how are you? And they say, good. How are you? It's like, it's a really hard conversation to like, keep going sometimes. So I think, you know, cause I have people in my life where like, anytime I ask them how they're doing, it's I'm great. I'm great. I'm great. And I'm like, that's good. But like, I don't really have a lot to, you know, to work with in that, in that point. So I feel like that's something else that I remember too, if I'm just inclined to just say good and, and not dive any further than that. I do want to make sure I talk about like the connection between platonic friendships and romantic relationships. And I wrote down this quote that a mentor had told me once, and she had said, like, you're going to have a lot harder of a time having an intimate relationship with a partner until you can have intimate relationships with friends. And I'm just wondering, like, is there research that shows people who do have strong friendships? Is there a connection in their romantic life? Yeah. Yeah. Harry Stack Sullivan, he's the psychiatrist who kind of argues he's this theory of chumships that friendships are the foundation through which we, you know, develop similar to attachment theory, except about friendship rather than parents. We develop this template for how people will treat us throughout our life. And there is research again, that people that have more friends develop more empathy, people that have more empathy, develop more friends, that people that have friends when they're younger have higher self-esteem when they're older. So, and there's like at the, the sort of physiological level, when we connect, we release a hormone called oxytocin, which then makes us better at continuing to connect. It makes us more trusting and more generous towards others. So I think there's certainly a symbiosis here. I think we do ourselves disservice because we don't realize how much skills are transferable between, you know, your spouse and your friends. Like what makes a friendship healthy? People have told me they read platonic and they're like, and I'm ready to go out dating. And yeah. I'm like, well, I wasn't going for that, but great as well, (laughs) because it's like what you do to make your friendship better also makes your romance better. Like I think in a lot of people's like marriages, they had to learn how to, how to work through conflict. Well, right. That's a transferable skill. You can also bring to friendships. We don't have to compartmentalize our relationships in these ways where like, I have this set of skills for friendships and this set of skills for my spouse. No, like what creates intimacy creates intimacy, no matter the relational context in which it comes in. I also feel like friendships can sometimes be like a safe learning lab for like, I mean, not like trying things out that could potentially hurt it, but like, I don't know. I just feel like in the past, my friendships have been a safer place for me before I like go out and do something in like a dating or a new relationship. So I feel like, I don't know, there's like a safety net within friendships for that. And I also, I know Esther Perel talks about it, just like the expectations that we now sometimes put on relationships where we expect our partner to be like, I think confidant, best friend, cheerleader, supporter. Like we just put so many roles in the form of our partner. And I know my marriage has been so much healthier and stronger when I'm in good connection with my friends, because I don't put it all on my husband. I don't expect my husband to like be everything for me. I like, I have certain friends that I go to for certain things. Then obviously I have things I go to my husband with, but I just know my relationship has been so much healthier when I'm in good standing with friends. Yeah. And this is, you know, I a hundred percent agree And I think it's so unfortunate that a lot of the times we see friendship 
and marriage as antithetical, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm going to be in this marriage and now I drop all my friendships where this island or yeah. you're hanging out with your friends all the time and you're not hanging out with me, not realizing that for healthy marriage, you need friends. Like friends are so much research behind this that when you get into conflict with your spouse, it disrupts your release of stress hormone, cortisol, but not if you have quality connection outside the marriage. That for women in particular, when they experience tribulations in their relationships, they're more resilient to it when they have friends outside of the relationship. Research on emotion chips, that when we go to different people to help us deal with different emotions, our well-being overall is increased. Research that finds that if I make a friend, I'm not only less depressed, but my spouse is less depressed because there's high rates of something called concordance between spouse's mental health. If your spouse is more depressed, you're more likely to be depressed as their spouse, right? So anything that makes your spouse happier, as in friendship, is also going to make you happier. Whereas the people that only have, they only rely on a spouse and they don't have a community outside of it. What we see in the research is that when there's natural ebbs and flows in their marriage, they are devastated by those ebbs, right? Their mental health just really is so harmed when things aren't going well in the marriage in ways that people that have community outside the marriage, that doesn't happen to them in the same way. So they're able to, in these times of difficulties in their marriage, access friendship, feel supported by friends, return to their marriage in a more centered place, in a more loving place. Like they have more resources to work through conflict with their spouse. So yeah, that's why I think the message of like, we need to level this hierarchy a little bit. It's just really going to help not only people that are single not feel so lonely or inferior because of their marital status, but also people that are married feel happier in their marriages. I think this is such an important topic. And I think like, I mean, I tell people, I just think breakups are like such a good I don't know, like, we're just at a fresh start. So we can like, you know, when people say like, I don't feel like I have friends, I'm like, this is honestly a great time. Like, you're highly motivated. You have more time, like you suddenly have a lot more free time. Like, this is a great opportunity to let people show up for you in your current friendships, go out and make make some new connections, take some of that energy that you were investing in the relationship and invest in, in friendships in that way. And I mean, I've made a lot of great friends during breakups and also like really deepened other friendships. So I think this is, you know, such a good pairing of what to do when you're going through a breakup. Absolutely. Yeah. I definitely agree. I think every loss is an offering in a way. And with the time that you maybe would have spent with your ex, you can now use on creating new connections. Yeah. Well, I hope everyone goes out and gets platonic. I assume they can get it anywhere books are sold. And congratulations again on New York Times bestseller. That is such a such a big deal. (laughs) (laughs) And where can people connect with you outside of just the book? Yeah. So I share research-based tips on friendship on my Instagram at Dr. Marissa G. Franco. That's D-R-M-A-R-I-S-A-G-F-R-A-N-C-O. And on my website, drmarissagfranco.com, you can reach out for speaking engagements on connection and belonging or take my free quiz that assesses your strengths and weaknesses as a friend and gives you some suggestions. Amazing. We'll make sure to link that stuff in the show notes. But thank you so much again for coming on and and sharing your wisdom. And I know this will have helped a lot of the listeners. Yay. It was my pleasure. Thanks so much for your insights, by the way. I think you have a lot of great insights on friendship too. Thank you. Learned the hard way, unfortunately. But yeah. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you loved it, I hope you'll leave a review and share with your friends. 
If you're not already following me on Instagram, head to at your breakup bestie where I'm sharing new content almost every day. To join our Facebook group, Healing Hearts Club, where you can connect with thousands of people from all over the world going through breakups, head to the link in the show notes. And don't forget to check out my online courses for more in-depth help through your healing journey. I always end these episodes the same way, reminding you to be nice to yourself, stay connected with loved ones, and the biggest reminder is that this too shall pass. I promise. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.